All right. Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. This is episode 60. Today I'm joined by a guitarist, uh, improviser, composer, Timuchin Shaheen. Timuchin, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I start off these conversations asking about uh, people's coffee habits, and I know that you uh, made a point of getting your coffee. And uh, you know, I saw in the liner notes for your new album that everybody seems to be drinking coffee in a picture. Um, could you tell us to start off just a little bit about your coffee habits? Oh my God, this is, uh, uh, we have a saying in the guitar world, like being a gear slot, but I can also put that up for coffee. You know, like we talk about gears in detail, but coffee is mm -hmm. very important for me. Um, I come from Turkey, so there's sort of a Turkish coffee culture, but I really fell in love with coffee when I moved to Holland. They were like drinking like 10 cups a day. Back mm. in the beginning of the 90s, you know, there weren't so much caffeine awareness back then. Uh, but now I like, I'm trying a lot of things, different beans. Uh, here in U.S., we got all these great things with like some mushroom, uh, like lion's mane and chaga, like mixed. I, I'm just trying if I like this and that. Mm. And I make my uh, coffee in this old school espresso machines, you know, you know. There's a special name I forgot, but um, I'm very basic in that, you know, it has to be, it has to be really fresh. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, basically, I I also mix the beans of Colombia and Brazil. So it's, it's I like that kind of two into the 80 percentage flavor. It's not too strong, mm -hmm. uh, but I drink every day, every day. I do. I, I, I don't know if I skipped a day since the last 10, 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I've only skipped a few days the past, you know, 10 or 15 years uh, by force, but uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, what's the coffee scene in Holland like? Uh, the coffee scene in Holland, I mean, I don't know right now what mm -hmm. is it because I don't live there, but um, they, was, they were filtering a coffee. They were putting a filtered coffee and it was waiting on that like whole cup and then they were like, pouring it whenever they wanted the years that I immigrated. Uh, but nowadays you have all these machines, you know, it got the technology also gotten better. Um, but I'm still the old school guy uh, doing it with my espresso machines. Like it's, I, it's just the labor. I like also how much I put it, how, how it's squeezed, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in Holland, they have a, a lot of, coffees with like milk they they call one thing uh, they call a coffee called coffee fakirt which is like wrong coffee <laughs> uh it has a lot of lot of milk in it so that maybe that's the wrongness of the thing um i drink mine black straight so nothing good, in it yeah. good man <laughs> uh cool well uh i mean i'm glad that you're also on team coffee um so uh, I guess to get into the album, uh, Punk Poems for Bird, uh, I, I am very uh, sort of intrigued to hear more about this. Uh, and starting off, you know, I know that you're into the M-Base sort of scene from like Steve Coleman. Um, can you sort of talk a little bit about how that went into this album? Um, I think the music I wrote uh, back in 2000s, uh, a lot of rhythmic material came from carnatic music idea so before m bass it was it was that thing for me uh like the, the polarism polypulses from south india uh, was a uh, uh it was like a magnetic experience for me to study that 
four or five years, I would say, maybe three, four, whatever. I also composed a lot of music based on uh, in South Indian forms, uh, raga and tala modulations, basically metrical and uh, melodic um, modulations, you know, like I wrote really true composed pieces back in the day. So I get that, I, I have that rhythmic material in me. Uh, and uh, I and, I mean, I, 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 I admire M-Bass a lot. Uh, I play with a lot of musicians who participated in that movement, uh, mainly Greg Osby, uh, Robin Eubanks is in my first album. And all, all other people here, I use like Tashan Sori, uh, Marcus Gilmore a couple of times, uh, Matt Brewer, uh, Thomas Morgan. All these people were in Steve's band. And of course, Sean Rickman and Reggie, you know, they're kind of maybe the more veterans uh, mm -hmm. in creating that sound. So uh, uh, the, the distinct philosophy that, musical philosophy that, uh, Steve and other people brought into the music is, you know, is very special. Um, the the African American musical utterance uh, being the main the, the main uh, locomotive in that. Plus, it's open to you know other other cultures. It's 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 a, it's a great uh, habitat to you know. Uh, structure different kind of musical organisms so and that kind of gelled with what i'm doing and whenever i get to play with anybody from that uh habitat it just feels very easy um you know in terms of uh in, in terms of the places that we can go to so uh it didn't really happen only on this album even in my first album it's, it's you, you hear more elements of Rhythmic complexity. I will say this has little less of that compared with the other albums. Um, like like the first album, Slick Road, when I was very young, of course, uh, it was right in the middle of the, that period. The second album, Window for My Bread, which I, Kai Card is playing. I mean, first in the first record, I had this great Meridangan player. He's very famous now, BC Manjunath, my brother. Um, an Iranian percussion player from Sovizaria, two percussions, Robin Eubanks and Haim van der Gein, a really weird setup, uh, sounding, uh, really exploring that rhythmical territory. Second album, the same. The third album, also Buffa, it's, it's like, it's, it's the same with Taishan, Thomas, and John O'Gallagher. Um, so I think this album has much less of that M-Base vibe. I think mm -hmm. because it, Sean and Reggie are in it, there's this uh, strong shadow of the M-Base maybe, I would say. Gotcha. Um, I know that, um, so I mean, the band is Flow State and then um, it's Funk Poems specifically. And so um, I'd be curious to hear, first of all, um, when you say Flow State, um, are, are you talking about the sort of like psychology term? Um, uh, you know, put forth by like chicks something high in those people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, it's a little. It went a little further than that. The record before this one, nothing bad can happen. That is called also Timuchin Shine's flow state. Mm -hmm. So the, the the concept actually arises those years, like 2016, 17. Um, that's a very concentrated music. A lot of true composed parts. It's with uh, Corey again on on piano. 
uh, Tom Brady on drums and uh, Chris Tordini on bass. It's more of a chamber jazz kind of thing. Um, has this lot of new music influences. Uh, the idea was that uh, the psychological aspect kind of branched out to slow state versus default trance state that mm. you're actually that, that we all more or less right now are exposed to and a little bit forced to live in a kind of oblivion mm-hmm. then really being immersed in the moment and uh and just really uh i mean that album really went deep in that philosophy in terms of like i have a trilogy in that album only three free impro tunes like flow state one two three has this uh re- resurrection part two reconstruction third coexistence has this kind of like how you achieve to that flow state coming out of that default trance mm-hmm. by like resurrecting reconstructing and then coexisting in the same mental habitat so um um and since i have Corey in this album also uh this 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 musical friendship relationship and then and the mental headspace that we both can achieve at the same time collectively uh also kind of bleed into this record you know so i wanted to keep the same name keep the same philosophy also uh and uh, kind of added another parameter of funk with sean and reggie uh through the, and then glue it to the music of Charlie Parker with the flow being the common denominator, mm-hmm. basically. Very cool. Um, I, I'm I'm curious to like know what is exactly meant by funk because you can certainly name you know like James Brown or whatever funk artist you want, but um, in terms of like a sort of more technical musical definition, um, like how would you sort of explain your conception of like uh, funk rhythm or just like what it means to have funk in uh, your music technically? Yeah, uh, so two things. Uh, definitely the rhythm section elements. Uh, Sean and Reg, they are the funk. You know, like like I, I don't know if uh, Sean still has the same phone number. Back in the day, his phone the last for digits was funk. You know that that was his. You know he's. They come straight out of funk. Even they do a, a lot of other incredible stuff. And uh, I mean, funk means for me, definitely flow, which actually coincides with what, like the, the main musical uh, critical feature, which is central to me. You know, it's the, the, the like, also in bebop, you have the flow. You, in every great music, you have the flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that regard, Varez also can cohabit that with this thing, because he's always talking about flow. I, I know maybe that's the other question that you will, get to because I've been talking about Juarez's and Charlie mm-hmm. Parker's uh, relationship. So um, he thought he, he, his uh, dream or admiration to achieve a sound world that flows like a river, you know, that's another thing. And funk has its, in, in its nature, it's like, that's, 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 um, you know, um, mainly James Brown is a big influence uh, for everybody you know for, for each of us that that nobody can sing like him still you know like michael jackson came very close prince you know like these people and they mm-hmm. created their own wonderful universes but like there's one james brown is that that thing is 
it's so authentic and unique and still special. Um, for me, uh, the, the 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 power uh, and yet the poetry in the same kind of uh, in, in the same musical uh, world that can easily exist as funk. You know, uh, when you think about funk, you you can get easily into this trance state. Uh, people think anything that is repetitive or has some kind of ostinato, uh, but there's it's, it's the, the the fine tunings and the details are so important. I wouldn't dare to sit an authentic funk band, to be honest, because I have so much respect. You know, I I mean I, I probably will do an okay job, but it's mm -hmm. a um, it's it's a very deep thing for me, and it's also like it's a very I think it's the most protest music more. Uh, it, it it used, I mean, this historical thing that it carried out towards the years, you know, like all this, all this funk artists, you know, the impact they brought, it's still alive. When you go back to 60s of funk, 70s of funk, 80s of funk, they're all, they all have a lot to say and uh, subliminally or, or very explicitly. Um, so, yeah, funk funk is funk is huge. It's also difficult to name an album putting that thing as you just said. You like everything can be funk, but I think the sound of this is kind of proves that this this has uh, funk is a central element in this music. Uh, to compare funk to something like swing, where you know swing like people might sum it up as like, oh, you take two eighth notes and it becomes, you know, these triple eighth notes, uh, that's sort of like, you know, uh, basic just description of like that rhythmic transformation. Um, you know, and then you realize swing is actually like something deeper than that. Um, is there something that you would sort of define funk as in terms of like, like that micro rhythmic quality um, that makes it like feel particularly good? Like, uh, it doesn't seem to be precisely metronomic but it's like kind of better than precisely metronomic if that makes yeah. sense yeah. yeah i think uh, a lot of gr a great deal of music has that kind of quality uh better than pre precisely metronomic thing you know mm -hmm. um i mean you can have you have that also in like some you know in, in carnatic music in you know in a lot of vernacular musics um that that the inter interpretation of the feel and the time you know uh david libman always says about swing uh, it's not a point in time but it's an area in time it's like a rubber band thing you know but you have that thing also in a uh, uh you know like the first thing i teach my students of jazz is like where is the beat you know like who plays in the middle of the beat where's the rhythm section who's behind you know these are kind of your go-to's like usual suspects is miles in the middle, Coltrane is a little bit front, Sony and Dexter is a little bit behind. I mean, Sony's sometimes being in the front. Um, but in, when it's like a straight groove, there still also exists. Great funk drummers have that, you know? Also, mm -hmm. like James Brown is, a lot of things are more very much centered, but like new ways of funk plays is, is all, always like, you know, pushing it. So uh, in the record, we have, uh, two tracks just came out in the studio, for example, the Reggie and Sean, they, they laid out this deadly slow funk beat. It's like, it's very difficult to play, you know? Um, 
And I entitled one of them Flow's Vibe for the band. And the second one is 11 to 15 hours a day. That's how much Charlie Parker used to practice mm -hmm. uh, when he was when he was young. So um, especially the, that track, 11 to 15 hours a day, that's that's a really hard, hard track to play on, you know, that and to keep that kind of momentum uh, and the and the, the great musical tension uh, with or without releasing it it's 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 an art so mm, that's as i said it's a deep thing the tempo is very decisive how you're going to play something you know like how it feels and of course uh, you can paint a lot of pictures you if i mean the frame and the palette is so important. You could just, you could go Mark Rothko or you could go Jackson Pollock on it. You know, it's just like this. Uh, then the, I mean, the the main goal is that music has to become really organic in, in whatever uh, thing you want to put on. Like it could be swing or like it, if things are kind of, the, if you have this ambiguity, ambiguent quality that what's happening what's going on there is that like is that guitar or piano you know like i i think we are achieving that things it's it's more like this sticks and strings kind of music than keys and stuff you know like the mm -hmm. the, the, the how piano and guitar is like coming into uh, existence is is sometimes it's you know so is that Corey or is that me this is like this is very hard to achieve with two different instruments mm -hmm. so um so more than the question of like how funk came into the picture here is like how we actually use that palette of funk and created some kind of an organic um organic musical musical painting i would say mm -hmm. okay um i guess uh you know you mentioned verez and i i was unaware of uh charlie parker's interest in verez um and i was you know wondering sort of like about the research that went into this album but it seems like there's a you know a great deal of like reverence for bird in the album but um like it doesn't seem over researched and um i'm curious just like what went into this like uh you know, research-wise, uh, like there's still that degree of spontaneity. It doesn't seem like overly, you know, uh, like it doesn't seem like it's about reading biographies or something like that. No. It's like a, no. a, a very pure translation of something, uh, right. you know, that he was doing into a modern idiom. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there are two main ideas about why I brought up that relationship, um, uh, because, I mean, insiders knew that. You know, like uh, quite a deal. It's 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 a little bit known now than 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 ten years before, but um, the main thing is we don't think about Charlie Parker in those terms. Mm -hmm. We we tend to think like John Coltrane and other like avant-garde artists, like you know Cecil Taylor or Ned Coleman about like talk. when when we include if you are recalibrating avant-garde uh, by inclusion of the great uh, Black American artists. You know, uh, Charlie Parker and his associates are more uh, mentioned in the bebop tradition. That postulation, you know, like mm -hmm. Kenny Clark and etc. Thelonious Monk. That was kind of the first um, first intervention, I would say. You know, like the the first uh, big 
big uh, penetration to the musical uh, to the musical system or, or 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 the canon back in the day. You know that this is an art music. This is really virtuosic, and this has all the aesthetics that art music. You know, this is nothing less than Beethoven. Nothing less than Stockhausen, et cetera, et cetera. We are doing this and we're not people's pleasers. You can be entertained by this music or whatever, but we are not entertainers, we are artists. And they proved that, Parker and his associates. Uh, then I think thanks to their first penetration or interaction, whatever you want to call, uh, people, now we, we could mention people like, I don't know, Cecil Taylor, John Coltrane, um and all the others the people who came after them their successors uh, we 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 started to include them in the avant-garde but but it was bird it was parker who actually uh kind of opened the gates to that uh, you know he opened a lot of channels and he wanted this a lot you know parker all um before mentioning his admiration to Juarez and Stravinsky, he always made something else. I mean, his life is so short, incredibly super short. And it's, uh, you know, he, he's an interesting figure. He's, uh, that's why like Martin Daltrey, he said like he could hear more future in the present by making, by, by doing something else. You know, like if you look at his strings, if you recordings, if you look at his, uh even his his sessions you know back in the day uh there was a i forgot his name there was there was a fan of him recording his sessions like uh it's now on uh, internet like he sent sent nick sessions like he's playing tunes on a really on a really wild manner that he's not he, he did not explore during the studio sessions like big jumps you know like sort of a like a little bit like Eric Dolfish things that he was doing, you know? So, uh, and he wanted to start study with Vares. Uh, he, there, there's this interviews online right now. Um, uh, he says he would love to write for bigger ensembles. He, and he, Bird is very humble and, uh, and, and he's very intellectual, but his language is very poor, very, very, very pure, I'm sorry. His language is very pure. He says, like, uh, I, he, he's going, to, I, I think he's going to accept me. Well, Edgar Juarez, this great French composer, as his pupil, I would love to be a student. And then it's, I think it's an interview that he does with Dave Brubeck, and Brubeck asks him, Are you going to stop playing? And he says, No, I'm not I'm never going to give up my horn. That kind of great thing. And then we also, Juarez also talks about Bird. Like, there's this young black saxophone player i'm really interested in how he plays he wants to study with me but that that collaboration never uh, materialized because Juarez went to a premiere to paris and then bird died mm. at the same time so just the fact that i mean now in retrospect we look at this music we, you know we we consumed it so much and we made a culture out of it you know, there are schools, we teach jazz everywhere, etc., which is great. But the essence was that he would not do the same thing. I mean, Coltrane kind of proved that. He had seven years longer. He lived seven years longer than Bird. He proved that. I and mean, where he started was really the tradition, you know. He was Johnny Hodges' 
apprentice. He he played with Gillespie and stuff. He did things, you know, giant steps. He's quartered. And then where he ended up with meditations and interstellar space with two drums and playing free with his other, you know. So mm-hmm. you see that he he did not do the same thing again. So I mean, following their footsteps, I think they're the real avant-gardists, you know. And Parker did not have that chance that much. But he actually left us enough mental material to contemplate on how to move forward as, you know, as the creators of today. We It's our intellectual necessity to go back and look at it, you know, and then uh, look at his music as how he could potentially, how would he do things and mm-hmm. how we should kind of move forward. So he gave us a incredible mental uh, legacy we don't really talk about that much you know we talk about his musical legacy which we should keep doing it but um that's why i, I would like to emphasize that also um, yeah these are basically the two main reasons that i wanted to um, put forward with this album also interesting um the, you know, you mentioned the uh, song uh, "11 to 15 Hours a Day," and when I read that title, uh, you know, it was immediately evident what you were talking about. Um, and I feel like I've glorified this idea of like, you know, you know, like marathon sort of gauntlet wood woodshed sessions. Um, but I'm curious if you have any insight into what that actually looks like, and I'm curious to hear a little bit about like what the sort of gauntlet woodshed looks like in your life or in Flow State's life. You mean like practicing 11 to 15 hours a day? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing uh, fantasy, right? Right. Um, I, I don't think I've ever had that volume of practice, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But I had I had my fair share back in the day, you know, like did, did some serious hours. Uh, now, because of life and travel and all other responsibilities, mm-hmm. I if I if I find time, I'm not going to, you know, I'll just grab that time and then spend time with my ex. So that's a, it's a, uh, you know, when you're younger, music and its complexities uh, forces you to work on them. And then it becomes kind of this main, main thing that that I'm able to do it. I'm not able to do it. I would like to play with that, you know, I don't sound quite all kinds of stuff going in and out of your head. Nowadays, it's just like music is rescuing me from all other life problems. You know, it's just, uh, I'm not saying I'm able to do what I want to do still, you know, that's, that's, that's not, I'm not talking about self-complacency or being content with what I'm doing. It's just the, the, the idea of bonding with your instrument. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it could be the most basic thing that everybody knows to practice or something that you create to move, like, you know, um, I don't know. It's a, um, it's an interesting thing. That's why if you ask any musician who is on a serious level with creativity and uh, um, the greatness of what we do is there is no end to discovery, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, Am I a veteran in the field or not? I don't know. I'll, I'm reaching my fifties. You know, I'm uh, in 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 few years. I'll be fifty. So um, still, I feel like I'm going and coming here. Uh, I'm in Harlem today. Tomorrow, I'll be somewhere else, playing in New York, going back to Turkey, trying to make ends meet at some point. But it's just 
because there is no end to discover new musical experiences and, and it creates some sound world that actually kind of matters to you. So practicing is one of them, definitely. Mm-hmm. So it's not anymore practicing. It's, it's, it's actually the path to discovery, I would say, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, Bird's ability to practice that long, I feel like there has to have been some, you know, element of just like being under the influence that allowed that to happen. But like, do you have any insight in terms of like how somebody actually does that? Because that like that's a wonderful fantasy, as you said. But like, I I kind of have to doubt that anybody these days could ever do that. Yeah. Uh, like, look, we let our time stolen by a lot of things. You know, we're also uh, complicit in that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so. But because of that, we are able to do other stuff. Like now you and I can connect through internet that we did not have, he did not have back in the day. Right. So, you know, so like um, that's a, when I started uh, studying music, I realized like there were much less distractions. There was no internet. There was, but like it wasn't accessible. Like I, I like the first time I wrote an email was like a revolutionary thing for me. So I did not have a computer for a long time. Um, we were mailing things i remember yeah so when you have a lot of time for you when you don't have that much of distraction it's just things are easier uh and now because of the technological stuff and the music is being disseminated much on a much faster frequency it has also a lot of advantages too you know like things i think any young musician these living in this age is progressing five, six, ten times faster than I used to, like especially on a technical level. You know, mm-hmm. I see like these young cats like doing this amazing technical stuff, etc. Uh, but but still, I mean, this is my and this is our story of this generation that I can relate the birds. You know, like I I've been in this time that there was no internet and less distraction. And when I was a kid in Turkey, I came from a small village. It was it's not a big city. I remember when the first TV came to our houses. You know, it was black and white. You had to like open it. You had to turn it on here and here. There was something called regulator. And it was only four hours a day. You know, that was like it. So uh, I I can easily relate with my parents and my grandparents' life. You know, when Mm -hmm. I first time I flew, it was 19. I was 19 and I flew to Holland to study conservatory, to go, you know, I had to have a reason to be on an airplane, you know, like a, it's a major reason. That was the first time I was leaving the country. Like my grandmother, she never flew. Uh, all these people, you know, now you're an unusual person if you did not have a flight trip. So mm-hmm. uh, it's for us now, it's unthinkable to be dedicated to on something for so long. You know, that's why we have meditation apps and stuff just to kind of, you know, mm-hmm. put our minds um that's a little bit about what what flow state means also you know it's just a reference to uh, i mean i didn't come up with this term i was inspired by this term but why i was inspired because it's like it's definitely it's it's directly related to the art form that you and i are in you know it's like mm-hmm. this, this this music making the act of music making is a such a is a such a deep experience and it's it's not only like contemplating on it, playing like playing together on it, but also spending your time, like you're discovering something from yourself. You it's 
I think it's an unbelievable discipline. Nobody's forcing you to do that. Just like um, it's 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 a it's an abstraction for a lot of people. Why you're doing this, you know? Like, um, so I don't know if I made sense to your question, but. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know how much of a question it was. Uh, so I, I was reading the liner notes, and you know, uh, I mentioned uh, Corey's sort of technologically retuned piano. Right, right. And um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about that. But also, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with your playing, you play a double neck guitar. Right. Uh, one of the necks is a fretless seven string yeah. or baritone, yeah. depending. Yeah. Um, and so you have this relationship with like a sort of, you know, less discreet uh, pitch choice, you know, mm -hmm. it's more continuous. And, uh, you know, coming from Turkey, there's like, you know, Turkish makam and all this sort of microtonality. So I'm just curious to hear about, I mean, I, I, I never really thought about how Bird plays sharp occasionally, but um, I'd be curious to hear you talk about sort of like uh, microtonality uh, right. in, in this record and Bird and your playing generally. Right. Uh, to start with what Corey does, he has this, little thing it's an acoustic thing he puts it inside the piano and it when he activates it it kind of changes so he's not huh. the, the, the the piano is not detuned it's i don't know what what that thing called <laughs> uh, and he he doesn't like to talk about that when i ask him a question so i kind of leave him alone on that field <laughs> but the important thing is it's really like uh, it's he, he's an amazing musician and we 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 bond on a lot of musical aspects together. Uh, what microtonality means to me, it, it meant a lot of things to me when I was in the beginning of 2000s uh, because of Carnatic music. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't start out with Turkish music. So when I got into Carnatic music, this with, with, with polarisms and polypopsils, the, the concept of microtonality came in also into the picture. So I started playing fretless guitar, took the frets out of my regular one of my guitars and then doing some Indian ragas and stuff. And then that actually triggered my Turkish heritage or uh, DNAs, you know? So I, yeah. I, I realized I was ignorant on that aspect. And then I, I studied some Turkish music on my own. Um, but I kind of parted from that because I did... I don't play any thing based on makam or something. And also I don't want to, you know, I just, I have a personal sound world mm -hmm. and personal musical system. Um, and that does not include that sound world. I'm still inspired by that, especially the old cats, you know, there are like some amazing musicians back in like Nejdet Yashar, a great tambour player, um, Tamburi Jamil Bey, you know those those guys when when you hear them improvise it's like they put you in a really in a place that uh, you can you want to reside for a long time you know so um also one other thing one other aspect apart from the microtonality was still connecting with what we just talked about a minute ago mm -hmm. for example in south india concerts like last like four hours three to four hours you know like People go and then listen and then like stay connected with that. In in all the Turkish music traditions, all these uh, improvisations also they they tend to last really long. Mm -hmm. And not only the players, but also people who are witnessing that are getting into that kind of zone. So uh, maybe it has to do with that. So that Indian culture made me reconnect with my own culture, 
which I did not explore before. But uh, I don't look at microtonality from a point of what a lot of people do. Some people really explore hard on that. You know, they they use specific tuning systems. Et Mine is very intuitive, you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's accidental, uh, I, I have to admit, you know, but like I kind of, uh, the, the aspect of spontaneity is to make that another great sounding discrete object mm -hmm. on that level. So, um, so basically I don't think about my fretless guitar separated from my fretted guitar. I mm -hmm. run the bolt next at the same time. I have it with me, with my main guitar actually. Yeah, I can show it to you. So this is the seventh string and this is the sixth. Um, um, this has a, like a regular tuning and this mm -hmm. has this, I have a hidden cello here and F sharp one. I don't know how much you're hearing it. I can plug it in. I have a, a funny amp, but. Oh, sure, uh, if you want to, um, we can't really hear much, but. Um... Yeah, just, just, I'm not going to play, but just letting, uh, or just for a second. So um, this is a, this is a regular six string and I, I sometimes run both necks with these pitches. And then this is interesting. Okay. So this 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 calls very, very low this F sharp one. So I have this hidden cello here. And and this too is always changing. Sometimes I go fifth up. Um and I have to break uh, two or three sets to make it sound well because sometimes it sounds wobbly. Mm. Uh, sometimes so I have to. I have to use more than one sets. Uh, and on that record, I have another, I use another guitar, another double neck. It's both of them are six string and they're completely tuned in fifths, whole tone apart. The fretless Ooh. is from C, starts from C and the fretless starts from B flat. Interesting. So like, like uh, if 11 to 15 hours, falls wide. The opening track, um, Homage, I use that. Um, uh, Sixth Sense of the Platypus, I use that. I use in more than more than one, yeah, four tunes, I think. Half of, more than half of the record, I use that one. Um, this is also the first record that I produced in Turkey. I have my old guitars because I'm not living in New York anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have the space issue. So I have my old, old guitars, my old amps, you know. So with, with this kind of tuning, I also have to have bigger speakers. At least one of the amps has this so the like I don't want to get too technical. I don't know. Uh, maybe you like. I mean, me please to get, get as technical as you uh, like. Okay, yeah. Uh, your audience probably are a lot of guitar players. I use like four times twelve uh, Marshall cab with one, and just just because the low end can come out clearly, you know. Mm. Um, I when I was living in America, I didn't. I mean, in New York, I didn't have any chance to store all this equipment. So right. So this 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 was a good opportunity that I could I was able to do that. Yeah. Uh, when did uh, so when did you make the decision to sort of uh, you know dive into double neck guitars? Um, and I assume, I mean, not all of your guitars are double necks, right? Or are they? No, no, I have single necks too. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like when I first sort of uh, encountered your music, I, I thought of Kai Eckhart and sort of like that trio era of like Trio Eckhart yeah. too and yeah. uh, John McLaughlin. And then I realized that you have an album with Kai Eckhart, and uh, I was very into that as well. But um, like that's a big decision, and I just I became a seven string guitarist recently, and I, it was a huge 
deal for me to get that extra string but you know another neck is like a whole other world right and you're um, doing it in a gimmicky way whatsoever yeah yeah um i'm not the first double neck guitar player of course not you know we have we have the jimmy page vibe in the rock world and stuff you know and then joe mclaughlin had it uh for years mm-hmm. that record is also one of my favorite records well i when i started out playing that i i got the cassette of that royal festival hall hi mm-hmm. uh, john mark and Tillock. that's for me like a I think that's my favorite John McLaughlin record ever. You know, I, I like him very much, but after that record, nothing is kind of coming to, I don't know, like maybe because he's playing with Plectrum on the mm-hmm. nylon string and he's the, such a gentleman, this English vibe, but also very powerful, you know? And uh, I think there's a lot to be said about that record. And I think Tirlok is in his best also, like the, the mm-hmm. amount of the material that like he's, he's doing is so amazing. Um, for me, it was uh, yeah, uh, and it's interesting how I approached Kai. I was very young. Uh, I sent him my very first record before Slick wrote. Uh, I said, "Would you like to play with me and stuff?" And he said, "Oh, this is great. I would love to." And then our friendship started, and then we 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 made that record. But um, I think uh, Double Neck started to, during those years for me. Um, it was still a research project, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in Turkey, we have a huge uh, tradition started by Erkan Or. Uh, he's a he's like the fretless guitar hero there, mainly playing through makam. He's like exploring the Turkish makams. These uh, most of his music is about that. Um, but my my music is not about that, you know. So um, when I started out, it's still I would I wasn't using bolt necks at the same time or not seeing this as a thirteen string instrument. But it was mm-hmm. just I'm now playing fretless. Now I'm playing fretted. Now actually I don't really care. So it's just this that kind of transformation is more interesting for me. I think it kind of makes who I am than anybody else who's playing this. This this formation this this uh, the, like fretted fretless uh, configuration, so um, and that actually is happening last ten years I would say since since my record inheritance uh, I'm seeing them as like a uh, like a widened palette of a widened musical palette uh, palette that actually has a lot to say i mean fretless has this vocal quality mm-hmm. you know um but the fretted meant so much to me after i started playing fretless because you have this precision you know like um it's so direct uh also the choice of wood and the pickups and the amp and everything you know like the concept of sound became much deeper for me uh after i start modifying the instrument uh because when I was playing the standard one neck, I took everything for granted. You plug it and you play. It's more about the cores and the lines and everything you do. But once you start t- thinking about sound and modifying your own sound, etc., even the regular six-string fretted became differently because you look from a point of orchestration mm-hmm. rather than instrumentation only, you know? So... Um, 
in that sense, like the stuff that I do in my composed works became also much more, um, or, or, or they, they start to be in more dialogue with how I play the instrument or vice versa, both influence a lot. Like there's this great American composer, Morton Feldman, who was a big influence in me. Like him, John Cage and the other New York school guys, mainly Cage and him, what they did was first they found the instruments and then they wrote the notes or they found the notes. Whether in the regular composed tradition, it's first you sit on the piano or whatever instrument, you find the chords and the notes and the whatever you want to do, and then you distribute it to an orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, they did totally different. Like with Cage doing that with prepared piano is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. He modified every key and then piano became 88 key percussion instrument. So um, it's not compared with what he did. What I am doing is nothing close to that, or, you know, there's nothing, I wouldn't say it's not, there's nothing revolutionary about it. It's just like seeing an instrument from an instrumentation or an orchestration or both, you know? So it's, uh, yeah. Um, so even it started like mid 2000 or beginning 2000, I think recently I'm getting the best out of the ball first at this moment. And I'm really look, looking forward what I would, what I, what I can discover further. Very cool. Uh, it, when you play, I mean, like there's like this sort of like very diverse range of timbres that you're using. Like, um, it, I mean, I feel like you're doing stuff harmonically that I can't really put my finger on. And um, like reading through the liner notes, uh, I saw stuff about like inverting uh, Charlie Parker's lines and sort of this like a uh, Schoenbergian influence. And I'm curious, just like as an improviser, uh, you know, like I assume you aren't thinking, you know, C major seven going to a dominant. I mean, maybe you are at some points, but like uh, what does that sort of like internal uh conception of pitch space and like uh you know harmonic material pitch sets what does that look like for you i mean on this record specifically if you're asking on the it's it's a it's much more intuitive you know mm-hmm. um i think uh, martin daltrey uh was a uh, i'm really grateful that he did those great liner notes he's an mm-hmm. unbelievable scholar that i always wanted to emulate when i was studying at nyu so um uh, we had a talk uh, before he r- wrote those things, you know, like, what do you think? Where, where is this? Et cetera. He, like, very honest and open talk, how I think about this. So, um, I, when I, one of the things I employ when I compose is really basic pitch set stuff, you know, mm-hmm. I love it. Like, and how, if you apply to, towards, if you filter through this instrumentation point of view, uh, and then, maybe uh, intervene it later on with your intuition and your ears it just becomes a, like a one of your one of the powerful uh, musical tools in your arsenal um that's that being one and secondly like i gave him some hints uh in couple of teams for example like um like after bird is based on a team called upper by parker you know uh is um i'm just using the rhythmic frame of of the melody the the team is totally transports in an 
in a way which I don't remember how I did it. You know, I kind of don't don't take notes how I like it sound. And then I I kind of later on intervened whatever I was doing it. So there there is an element of uh, you know New York school. There's an el- like this and there's an element of probability. Mm. By Zanakis, for example, there's an element okay. of uh, VNA school. You know, I, you know, I, I'm a product of what everything I love, so I, I wouldn't hesitate to employ any of these things on any kind of musical uh, opportunity. So, mm. uh, yeah, that's how I, that's how free I am looking at a musical object. I would say. Uh, for example, in, like Bird Watchers is based or inspired by a tune called Ornithology by Parker. You can also see it in the titles a little bit. Mm-hmm. What does ornithologists do, basically? You know, <laughs> like before analyzing instinct, they first watch birds, right? So, like, uh, it's it has it has a bunch of subliminal things. We all would like to watch Parker, also, like you know. Um, and a couple of other things you have in there, uh, confirmation on 26.2, it's, there's this, this connection with him and John Coltrane, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I played another solo confirmation on, on the record. So, um, if I look at harmony, I'm not going to just like think about, as you say, G7 is going to A7 or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's just. Uh, everything has its place. That's beautiful too. But I mean, we live in 2022. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of things happened. So, and then given that these guys took us to different time spans in that very short times, in the in the in, in their very short life, you know, that's that's again, it's our intellectual necessity to move the music forward with being true to, you know, uh, to its roots. Definitely, you know. Uh, it, one of the most impactful moments for me as a guitarist, I think, was when I was in college and um, I sent an email to Ben Maunder uh, trying to like study with him. And he basically sent me back this list of how he practiced, practices uh, with, you know, like permutations of various four note chords. And I feel like I've been working on that, you know, for the past like 15 years. And so similarly, I imagine that you have some sort of way of implementing these pitch class sets or I mean, like. Um, I guess I'm just curious how, like what shedding this type of stuff looks like for you, because, you know, with like, you know, four note chords, there's so many permutations, like it's only 24 per four note chord, but that's already so much, so much when you do, you know, all 12 keys and then you do like non-tertian chords and it's just overwhelming. So I'm curious how you actually like sort of digest that material and make it intuitive. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, all your questions are, I, if you look at the, how this conversation unf- unfolds, it's, they're all related, you know, like practicing this and that, etc. Uh, like maybe because he could practice 15 to 12, 11 to 15 hours a day was because like practicing is not one thing. It's just, you can create your own practice. It, you, it could be really personal and it could be also influential. You could get influenced by another guitarist, another instrument, another discipline, you know, uh, whenever I'm doing something besides music, for example, uh, because I'm not, let's say, I mean, 
in a kind of advanced level with the music, but if I play basketball, for example, you know, like I see how they do drills, etc., or or boxing, like like it's a lot of things are based on repetition in any skill, mm-hmm. but like how incremental you do evolve by doing the same thing, but also every time a little different and every time a little more additions, you know, the choreography that goes into that, you know, like all the footwork goes into that, you know, it, now I just gave them examples of boxing and, 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 and basketball, because those are the two sports I, I like. And I, I kind of try to do uh, all the combinations. And then when you are in a game situation, how you interact with people. So all, all these things are basically, you are developing a sort of muscle memory and all the choreography that you're doing inside that is like preparing you to that and beyond. Uh, what I love about practicing is stuff that you practice 10 years before sometimes can come out back to your practice routine or it can just like emerge on the stage, you mm-hmm. know, on a like a really abstract way. So it's, it's, it's very personal, you know, like it's, you're filtering through like uh I'm very interested in Ben Monder's like four and stuff that he's been doing. I, I, you have to do it for years. Please send me that list. You know, so it's I'm like swapping notes between musicians. That's what I try to tell my students. Also, uh, there's a there's a, there's a saying: you swap notes, iron sharpening iron, right? That's that's. Mm-hmm. So it's it's with every skill. It's it is abstract, but you can make it more. Um, uh, more real you know you can it, it just becomes tactile after a while you can really touch like a musical sound it's like it, it's so close to you you know it's like because you familiarize it so much you worked on it so much it's like you see it you like it, and then you play you don't even think about it like you kind of separate yourself you know for, i'm sure you have those moments also and then you're very much connected with everything else going on practicing is not to get better only on the instrument also it's like it allows you to be free and flexible you know you can only be flexible when you uh, when you when you fam- when you're super familiar and internalize the stuff so much so and after I, I don't really i don't really think about if i'm thinking about something or not on the stage like you know like yes there's a lot of worked out stuff that i'm doing you know, like I've been working on this for a while, so I'm trying that. I'm trying if it's going to, but it's not. It's not going to decide. Definitely not going to dominate or decide how which direction the music can. Uh, the music will take. So uh, I trust more the sound and the space and the musicianship that is happening on the spot. Um, and and practicing is, uh, I, I leave that out when I go on stage. That was your question probably, right? Hmm. Like I kind of try to leave it out, you know, because it definitely comes back to you. If you do it enough, it's you, you don't have to worry about it, you know, like uh, oh, I'm detaching, uh, it, it will come back to you. It's if, uh, I think music is a very loyal field. Um, if you have enough talent and if you spend enough time on it it's actually it's going to pay off it's a great friend you know you can really rely on it the hours that you put on into something uh it 
I don't know. It it never. I I haven't seen anybody thinking differently. I wrote so much on this, and then it's not working. Unless you worked on the wrong thing, or in a in a way that is not uh, serving the musical purpose of what you're doing. So I don't really worry about if it's intuitive or if it's coming natural or something. It does come natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. We're at an hour, so I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I, I, to just end on a, a last question, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't remember if this was in your conversation with Dan or the liner notes, but there's a lot of talk of like the sort of tactile feeling of flow and sort of as our flow aficionado, I'm curious um, if you can sort of give me a little bit more of a sense of what that tactile quality is. Yeah, I, I just mentioned uh, like uh, 10 seconds ago, it's like uh, when you you're immersed in the music so much that it's like, it's almost, I think that the first time I heard about the tactile quality in the music was Takamitsu talking about Feldman's music. Mm. Because uh, his stuff is like, you can really see it, right? It's like vertical, right? A lot of music. He plays a chord and he focuses on the decay. Uh, And I thought, yeah, that's how one musical organism come into existence and leaves us but it's stays lingering in your head also you know so that's something the the tactile meant this for me for example we think that acoustic gives us all the answers it gives so many answers but not all you know like uh for example i have tinnitus right it's real for me that sound that I hear all my life is just as real for any sound that I'm hearing. It's so what about that? You know, all this earworms we have, etc. So when Cage talked about sound and space, I I think he also meant this, that this, you know, all this experience, this, this is this is carrying with us. So I, I'm more referring referring to how things solidify for mm. us in the reality you know something abstract as sound you know it's just it's the most abstract art form you don't see it you can't touch it like you want to like with a painting you can go back and do whatever you want to do with it but only with sound uh that's why it's probably more intimidating you know Mm. since it's the most abstract thing like i mean in everybody is like you know in MoMA, it's a modern art museum. Uh, every day, eight thousand people are visiting that. You know how many people are like visiting a new music concert, or you know when you, there's a huge asymmetry in that. How we and and I think part of it is is sound is very abstract. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a little metaphor for me that is actually yes, it's it's abstract, but towards the years. I feel like I can touch it, you know, that's like, and this, with all, all the people who influenced me, and particularly for this record, like, all this choir of funk, starting from Brown, and Charlie Parker, and Barres, that's like, it became so personal, and then, and then it's also my music, I, I actually put together, put this thing together, we, we co-created this music with these people. So it just become so real for us. So we can touch it. Not 
by our hands, but we can still, it's it's tactile, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it does make sense, but I think it does, you know, because I mean, you're a musician who's been immersed with what you're doing for so long. That's, I mean, the disadvantage we have against the visual artists that, you know, it's a different kind of relationship we have. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, anyway, yeah. Well, um, again, uh, the album is Funk Poems for Bird. Is there anything else you want to talk about uh, or mention about the album? Um, well, I'm thinking about recording uh, the second part of this. Uh, it's it's coming into uh, our talks more and more. I would like to record one more session with this band, maybe keep this band because... Um, that's again back in the days you had bands as mm-hmm. jazz musicians too now we kind of indulge because there are so many great musicians every project we have like different people so i would like to see how how um, how long and what kind of a uh musical line we could we could create so that's that's one thing second um yeah i'm i'm, I'm curious how this musical resonate in 10 years also so um, i think we kind of created some kind of a timeless sound so i'm really i'm always curious how one record means after so many years to to me and to other people so mm-hmm. um yeah go and get it some band camp um i'm in new york playing a concert this monday with Corey smite who was on the, uh, and tom rainey basically that's like the first full state State 1.0 minus Chris Ordini. Chris, Chris won't be with us, so it's a baseless trio at Drone. So, if you're in the New York area, come and check that out. Uh, and then, in the middle of winter, we have a tour hopefully in, in Europe with the Flow State group. Yeah, awesome, cool, awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Team Machine. Um, this has been a pleasure, and hopefully, uh, we'll talk in the future. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Talk to you later. All right, bye.